it is not fun to be stuck in the wilderness. Maybe you have heard of Aaron Ralston. He's the guy who a few years ago was uh, rock climbing in a slot canyon in eastern Utah when a boulder fell on him and pinned his, uh, his left arm in place, and he could not get this thing uh, dislodged no matter what he tried. And he was stuck there by himself uh, in uh, this, this slot canyon, and he ended up being there for over five days. And during that time, I mean, he ran out of the little bit of water that he had. He was forced to drink his own not water. But the thing that he's really known for, the real memorable part of the story, is that after he realized that he was not going to survive and that no one was going to find him, he realized that he had a pocket knife and that his arm being trapped by this boulder that he couldn't dislodge, he realized the thing that he needed to do, and he did this, he took this pocket knife and cut off his arm so that he could escape, and he lived to, uh, to tell about this. You, know, you, with everything that we have going on right now, you may feel that you are also stuck in the wilderness, at least metaphorically. You know, we just finished a short series on perseverance. And now we're starting a series on Moses and the Israelites in the, the book of Numbers. And they are, they are stuck in the wilderness, needing to persevere needing to finish well. And before we get into numbers, I want you to see something because I want you to see a really cool connection between perseverance and the book of numbers. And so our first point is going to be even before we get into the book of numbers, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and going to start here with verse 24. We're going to read this. If you watched the message from last week, this is going to sound really familiar to you because this first part here, this is the main passage from last week, the last message on perseverance. But we're going to keep going. So 1 Corinthians 9.24, and the very first point I want to make before we even get into other things is that the book of Numbers was written for our example and instruction. Look at this. I'm not making this up, and this, this is not a stretch. Verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, we're going to keep going. And we got to remember that when Paul wrote this, he did not put a big chapter break uh, between what we call chapter 9 and chapter 10. Those were added way, way later. He just, he just kept going. So if we keep reading, this is what it says. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Remember Moses and the Israelites going through the, through the Red Sea. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, talking about manna, and all drank from the same spiritual drink. They followed, for, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So if you're picking up on this and recognizing, he's talking about things that happened in Exodus and Leviticus, and now things that are going to be happening in Numbers as well. Now verse 6, this is key. Now these things took place as examples for us. These things in Numbers and Exodus took place as examples for us, for believers in this day, in this era that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, verse 11, this one's key again, too. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So, Christian, in this, in this world today and that we live in, these things that happened, that we're looking at in, in the book of Numbers and with Moses, they, part of... Why they happened was an example, and they were written in Scripture for, for your instruction so that we could gain example and knowledge from this, from their good examples, and we're going to see from bad examples as well. Written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You want to finish well in this life, but you're worried. What if temptation overtakes you? He's saying that there's temptations, the same temptations that they deal, dealt with three and a half thousand years ago are the same situations really at the core that we go through today. That the book of Numbers, the Old Testament, is relevant and is God's word speaking to you and I today. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, like I said, not a stretch. Connection between perseverance and learning that and what happens in the book of Numbers. So when you hear that, we're in the book of Numbers. If you're tempted to say, ah, oh, book of Numbers, oh, that's going to be so boring. It's all these census results and, and lists of numbers and all this. No, this is written for our example and our instruction. This isn't just a, a day gone by in the past that has nothing to do with us. This is written for us today. And we look at some of the themes that we're going to be dealing with. Now, this first week, we're flying over a lot of material. We can't, we're not going to be able to cover everything. But next week, we're going to be in chapter 11, which it's on complaining. Um, does any of that go on today? And then how about this one for something timely and relevant? 
in, in two weeks in chapter 12, just to give you a little bit of a preview here, in this chapter, Moses' sister and brother, okay, Miriam and Aaron, they give Moses a hard time. They rebel at him. And it says, because of the, the Cushite woman that Moses married. And we'll explain what does that mean. A Cushite woman. This was a, this was a dark-skinned woman. This was probably a black woman. You had Moses married uh, to a Cushite, and they didn't like it. This is about racism. The things that Scripture addresses back then are relevant and teach us today. So I'm excited. There's also a lot of great stories in the book of Numbers. Um, we're not going to be able to cover everything, so I hope that you're reading it on your own. Now, I, I firmly believe that Scripture is inspired by God, and I firmly believe that every verse is there for a purpose. That doesn't necessarily mean that each verse needs to have its own full sermon. Uh, for example, in chapter 7, it's, it's 89 verses specifically about the, the specific amount of silver and animal sacrifices that each tribe contributed for the dedication of the tabernacle. Okay, 89 verses of that. It's, it's, a, it's an important record, and in God's wisdom, it is included in Scripture, and it's good that we have it. Um, and it reminds us today also that every person makes an important contribution. Uh, but no one is probably quoting from that chapter uh, for their life verse. But still, I, again, I encourage you to read it. We're covering just an overview of the first 10 chapters uh, here today, but I encourage you to take time and, and read it. And there are some gems in there as well. So getting into actual book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 1, and the second point for the message is that each of, we deal, okay, we're going to be looking at things that you may think, what does this have to do with us? They have a census of how many uh, people are in Israel. What does that have to do with us today? It's going to be talking about the duties of the Levites. Um, Levites don't even have duties today because we're, we're in the, uh, the church age, the Christian era now. So, you know, talking about things, what they needed to do to cover um, the, the altar and the ark and different furniture in the tabernacle when they go to transport it, detailed instructions. You may think, well, what does that have to do with us today? We don't, those things don't even exist anymore. But each of those things, when we look at it, it teaches us something about the character of God. And if we learn from this something about the character of God, we are learning something that is timeless and never, ever changes and transforms our life. So this next point is the census reminds us that God is faithful. It shows us that God is faithful. He can be trusted. He is worthy of our trust. So Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. So again, we see time and time again, this is the Lord speaking. This isn't just human invention. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, 
by father's house according to the number of names, every male head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, and each man being the head of the house of his fathers. Verse 5, And these are the names of the men who shall assist you, from Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shedur. And, and then it goes on. And we, you, you can look at this, you can read all the names of the men that are uh, to, to called to, to help them, and then it gives the census results, and that's most of chapter 1. We won't take the time to read this all, but I want to talk about it and what it, what it means. We say in the first verse, um, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. You know, our English title for the book is Numbers. And that comes from, well, before English, from the Greek uh, translation um, that they had. They gave it the title of uh, Arithmoi which we think of arithmetic, think of that, has to do with numbers. That's because it has the the censuses, the counting of the people. But it's interesting is actually, if you have a Hebrew Bible, it's written in Hebrew, it actually has a different name. I mean, not just a different, the Hebrew word for numbers, the title for the book actually doesn't mean numbers. If you have a a Hebrew Bible, it takes the, the fifth word that is in uh, the Hebrew text, and that word is Bemidbar, and it means in the wilderness. So in the Hebrew version, the title means in the wilderness, because that's where they are. That's where uh, the book of Numbers is, starts off, and that's where the whole thing really is, is going to take place. When we think of wilderness, don't think of um, around here with like woods and trees, uh, but also don't think straight out desert either. Just you know, giant hills of rolling sand. It was, it, w- it was not quite like that. Um, it would be pretty, you know, barren. You know, flocks could still, you know, go out there and maybe find something. So it's not a complete arid desert, uh, but there would be very little vegetation, very little to live on, and and hardly any trees at all. So kind of a rough kind of wasteland. Not the place that you would want to to stay and. Uh, to hang out with your people for a long period of time. So at the beginning of this, it also gives us the location. They were at, in the wilderness of Sinai. Remember, Mount Sinai is where they got the Ten Commandments from. And you know, if you want to learn more about Exodus or Leviticus or the Ten Commandments, uh, we've done series on those, and you can find those on the website. So after Moses gets the Ten Commandments, this is now the second year after coming out of Egypt that God used Moses to deliver the Hebrew people from their slavery that they were in when they were in Egypt uh, through many miracles and uh, just dramatic things that happened, the, the mighty hand of God bringing them out. So now he's being told by God to have a census. They want to do a counting of the people. And specifically here, who are they counting? Well, it, it, it's not everyone that's being counted. Uh, specifically, it's all of the, the males and all of those that are at least 20 years old who are able to go to war. And we see there's a purpose behind the census. It's counting how many, how many troops do they have? How many do they have that are able to be part of this army for the calling that God is going to give them next? Which is going to be to go into the land of Canaan, 
and to take that, to take the promised land that was given to them. Because long ago, God had given Abraham, their great forefather, this promise that he would be with him and bless him and make him into a great nation. And to have a great nation, it requires people, it requires law. We've seen that given in Leviticus, and it requires land. So they need to go in and they need to conquer this land. So if we look at the, most of the rest of chapter 1, we see the results of uh, these, these totals. Uh, so, for example, verse 26, Of the people of Judah, their generations by their clans, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to the war, those listed of the tribe of Judah, were 74,600. And so you get these for each of the 12 tribes. Well, not exactly the 12 tribes, because we're going to see the, the tribe of Levi is missing. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to get to that. Uh, so Levi is not included in here. Uh, there are 12, but that's because Joseph, you know, one of the, the 12 sons of Jacob of Israel, um, that he is, uh, he, he is favored, and so his descendants are split into two sub-tribes. That's Ephraim and Manasseh. But the grand total that's given is 603,550 warriors when you add up the census. So you have uh, just a a very uh, large fighting force that they have. Now I have to address this because there are some people that will raise the issue of the numbers. And are, are these genuine numbers? Can we can we trust uh, what it says here? Or is there some problems kind of with that? And I want you to be prepared and realize that uh, sometimes you might hear this. Now, if you have 600,000 men, if you add in women and children, uh, this will come up to probably at least 2 million of the, of the Hebrews, possibly more than that. And some have argued that this just seems too high. They say based on what seems to be uh, typical populations, as far as they understand it at the time, this seems too high. Uh, some have wondered, you know, just h- how could this be the case? Now, liberal scholars and, well, unbelievers, I mean, they don't have a problem. They'll just say, well, the, the Bible's wrong. But even some conservative scholars um, would say that it seems like there might be potential problems some would say well, it's still difficult to imagine that a group this large could survive in the wilderness of, of Sinai for 40 years, and that's what's going what's gonna to happen. So we kind of wonder, you know, are we reading the numbers correctly? And sometimes we wonder, well, maybe there is an issue. Now, I want to say I definitely believe in the, uh, the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, so if there is an issue, it's not with Scripture, but sometimes it's, it's with us. I always think about this, you know, what if you had Roman numerals? You know how they work where, you know, I is 1 and a V is 5 and an X is 10, and you, you add them all together. But if you have an X and then an I, it's 11. But if you have an I first and then an X, then it's 9 because you subtract instead. So it's like, what if there is something that we just don't understand about the numbering system that's kind of gotten off as far as, not a problem with the text, but a problem with the way that we understand it? Some have suggested that since the word that means thousand, which is elip, can also mean families or clans, 
that might be part of the problem, and so maybe the totals should be calculated differently. Um, some think that you know, there's maybe uh, everything's 10 times what, what they think would make better sense. <clears throat> but the problem is that none of these solutions uh, just works consistently when interpreting the numbers in Scripture in all cases. So if there is something that we don't understand, we haven't figured it out yet. And so um, we just, we don't know. It could be a possibility, but uh, that's not something that, that we understand. I mean, some others have suggested that the numbers have just symbolic value, but that doesn't seem that way to me. This seems like it's giving a literal listing of this is how many people there were. So some things I think we should consider. Yeah, it is true that a group this large shouldn't be able to survive that long on their own in the wilderness. Yeah, I mean, that's the point. That without God to help them and to take care of them, they would have been goners. They would not have lasted. God had to give them manna from heaven to to feed them and and quail and water from the rock, and he had to protect them. if you don't believe in God, it's a big problem for this to work out. But if, if the Almighty God exists, he can protect them, and, and this is possible. Also, to remember in, in Exodus, the reason that the Egyptians started to get panicky was that the Hebrews um, that, the, that had come there to live uh, for a while, um, the reason they panicked and put them in slavery is because the Hebrews were, they were multiplying like crazy. And they're like, these Hebrews are multiplying like rabbits, and there's, there's going to be too many of them that if they wanted to take us over, they could outnumber us, and they could, they could defeat us. So they subjected them to slavery to try and control them. Also, too, 70 Hebrews, if they originally went to Egypt with Joseph, that's how many, it tells us that 70 Hebrews originally went there. In the time period, they had 430 years. If each couple had four or five children that survived and were able to reproduce, the math actually works out that you could start from that group of 70 and get up to this size. It is mathematically impossible. It is possible. I mean, God would be blessing them, uh, but it is, it is realistic. So I'm going to take the numbers at face value as far as we understand them. I guess with the possibility that maybe there is something that we don't understand, and if we find that out later about the numbering system, okay. okay. Um, But the face value, um, with God's help, this could work. The important thing, too, to remember is in Genesis 15, 5, part of this is God fulfilling his promise. In Genesis 15, 5, okay, so about 500 years before this, God had promised Abraham, their forefather, that his descendants would one day be more numerous than the stars. It seemed hard to believe because Abraham and Sarah were were old people beyond their reproducing years, and they didn't have any kids, much less uh, to fill up the night sky with stars. Let me read to you. Genesis 15, starting with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, 
Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look to the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God gives Abraham this, this promise that he would have offspring as numerous as, as the stars. You think, well, how many, how many was this if we're doing a census and how many this need to be? Now, okay, today with telescopes that we have now and our knowledge, we know that there is a, a, a billions upon billions of stars. But for what would make sense to Abraham, I mean, he was limited to just what he could see with his eyes. And it was still a lot. I mean, back then, you didn't have cities with light pollution and you didn't have smog and all this. And you could see even more stars than you can see today. Uh, they say that uh, quite possibly uh, in his time, he could have counted distinctly maybe with the 6,000 stars. They say today, I haven't tried counting myself, but it's a lot less. You know, maybe 2,000, maybe more if it's a better night sky. But back then, he, it would have been amazing. He might have been able to count 6,000 stars. But now there's a census listing hundreds of years later his descendants. And it's not 6,000. It's 600,000 fighting men. God made good on his promise a hundred times over. And plus women and children. And God was just getting started. So when I read these census results, I don't think this is just a boring list of numbers. This is a record saying, look, God is fulfilling his promise. He said something, and he is making good on this. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He can be trusted to keep his promises. And that's a big application for today. If God is faithful, if he is trustworthy, you can trust him. You can trust that he will keep his promises. He proves himself again and again, and God is at work, even when it doesn't, to us, seem like it. This took hundreds of years. This took a lot of ups and downs and valleys and, and times in darkness and slavery for God to fulfill this promise. But he was at work through all of this. You know, right now, we have to hold to many of the promises that God's given us with just the eyes of faith. We, we can't see them literally yet, but we believe, God, that these things are true. But there will come a day. There will come a day when the fulfillment of all of God's promises will be as real and as tangible to us as the people in the census were to Moses. And God does everything for a purpose. And even during their time in slavery, God was multiplying their strength as a nation. And he was preparing them for their next calling, the, the calling to take the promised land. And so for you and I, even in your downtime, God is at work. And God is strengthening you, 
And God is preparing you for whatever calling he has for you next. So from these results, God is faithful. We're just going to talk about one other thing from this. We're going to talk about the Levites in the tabernacle a little bit. You can read the details, but the, the, uh, the third point here is that the Levites and the tabernacle remind us that God is holy. God is a holy God, that he is, he is set apart. The Levites were not included in the census. They had a, they had a special role. We read this at the end of Numbers uh, <clears throat> chapter 1, 47, but the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of your testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belong to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they are to take care of it, and they shall camp around the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the people of Israel shall pitch their tents by companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard, by their own flag. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimonies, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. As they camp around the testimony that's holy, the Levites would be this buffer zone between the holy God and the rest of the, the people. And all the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel... They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So the tabernacle was holy, and it had to be kept separate. And the the Ark of the Covenant was in the center of this, in the holiest place of all, in the Holy of Holies. So even around this, the Levites, they were responsible to take care of it, uh, to help the priests, to guard it. When they had to move, they were in charge of uh, packing things, moving it from location and setting it up again. And that was their role. So the Levites are the descendants of Levi. Uh, They're not all priests. Okay? So all of the the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. To be a priest, you had to be from the family of Aaron specifically. And so if we keep reading in Numbers, if you do this, you're going to see in chapter 2, it shows the arrangement of the camp with the tabernacle in the center and then the Levites surrounding it. And there's different types of Levites we're going to see. And then all the other clans, a camp, it would have to be like almost small cities around them. And then it's going to talk also about, uh, in chapter 5, the, the unclean that would be outside of the camp proper. In chapter 3, it talks about the duties of the Levites and things that they were called to do. Like we said, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. It's going to talk about the priests. And uh, remember, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they were struck dead because they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Uh, but Aaron had some other sons as, as well. Now, in chapter 4, it's going to talk about the duties of some of the different clans within the Levites. And again, this might sound like it's really dull, and what's the point of this? But 
This is amazing. It's going to talk about the duties of the sons of Koath, Gershon, and Mirari. The Kohathites, they were responsible for transporting the ark. Okay, that's not Noah's ark, that's the ark of the covenant. Okay, like in Indiana Jones. Okay. And it was, it was holy and they were supposed to uh, transport it. It was, it was very sacred and this was their job. And they would also transport the other things, uh, the sacred items, the altar, the lampstands. And there were specific ways that they were to do this and to cover them. And so in Numbers chapter 4, uh, it, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Koath from among the sons of Levi, by their clans in their father's house, from 30 years old up to 50 years old. So between 30 and 50 is when you are eligible for this job assignment. All who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. And this is the service of the sons of Koath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So the Kohathites didn't do this because they couldn't see the ark. So Aaron, his sons, the priests, they had to go and they had to um, cover it first with the, the veil that would be in the tabernacle. But then there's another layer. It says, then they shall put on top of it a covering of goat skin. That's what the ESV says. It's kind of fun because, uh, okay, the, if you have a King James, it's going to say badger skin. Okay, uh, badgers, badgers, we don't need no stinking badgers. And, but, if you, but if you read the New American Standard, it says porpoise skin. So is this goat, is it a badger, is it a dolphin? And it just shows that scholars aren't sure what this word means or what animal this is. But it was some kind of probably very durable leather, and this is a second layer. But then there was a third layer, and it says, and spread on top of that a cloth all of blue. And she'll put in its poles. And then it goes on saying they should do this with everything else. Say, well, why is that important? Why is that a big deal? Well, we'll come back to that in a second. But then it also lists the duties of the the Gershonites. They're responsible to carry the curtains of the tabernacle. Okay, so it's it's curtains for you. They they have the job of carrying the curtains. And the mirrorites responsible for the frames in the tabernacle. And this was appointed by God. But think about this. What if the mirrorites, you know, the sons of Mirai said, well, I don't want to carry the framework of the tabernacle. That's kind of boring. That's not the most glamorous thing. But, you know, if they didn't do that, and they moved the tabernacle to the next place, you would just have a, a floppy bunch of cloth on the ground. I think that's a reminder to us as well that we all have a critical part to play. We all have a role and a calling that God has called us to. And we all need each other. This teaches us, all of this, that God is holy. There's a proper fear of God that we should have because of that. But no, we don't respect God's holiness as we should. And there's a story in 2 Samuel 6, story of what happened with Uzzah and the ark. And so this was, uh, a few hundred years later on, this was the time of King David. And here the ark is being transported 
uh, to Jerusalem with an ox cart, and everyone's looking at it. It's this big parade, and there's all these spectators, and everyone is just thrilled. It's an amazing thing. And it goes south really quick, from a day of just joy to a day of being terrified. It says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and uh, castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah puts his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. So they have it on this cart, and the oxen stumbles, and it looks like the ark of God is going to fall on the ground. Uzzah thinks, or just reacts and says, I can't let this happen. And he goes to touch it to steady it. And it says, verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry with the Lord. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. He was angry with God. You know, sometimes people read the story and think, well, God is, he's kind of flying off the handle here. Uzzah is just trying to help. He's trying to keep the ark from falling on the ground. Shouldn't he get a medal or something rather than being struck dead? You know, is this this God of the Old Testament that's just, uh, he's full of wrath and fury and, and anger, and that's just an example of this. Well, wait a second. If we read what we read in Numbers, Think about what it was really saying. It was saying there that they were not supposed to be transporting this on any type of cart, having oxen pull it. They were supposed to have poles put in it. And so they would hold it like that with different men holding these poles, and you're not, you're not going to stumble and drop it. And you know what? Uzzah shouldn't even have been able to touch this thing. Watch us see it. It was supposed to be covered with three different layers when they went to move this, and just by the Kohathites. But, you know, we want to do things our own way. We want to say, God, yeah, you may have told us, whatever. We're going to do things our own way. And then we get mad at God when there are consequences. When we decide to do things our own way and there are consequences. We forget that God is holy. And we forget that, that we are not. I mean, we are so full of presumption and, and self-righteousness. Think of how much going on in the world today is, is people being full of self-righteousness and causing so many problems. And we don't see that actually God is being merciful. Because if we also looked in Numbers chapter 4, 17 through 20, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, because you're going to need them. But deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look at the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. Was God being unrighteous? Was he being a God of injustice? If God was going by what he had promised with the letter of the law and what people deserved, it wouldn't have been just Uzzah that died. It would have been everyone in that whole parade, everyone in that crowd that was looking at the ark there exposed, should have all been struck dead. We tend to look at the, the little time that God gives some of his justice and we think God is out of control. 
instead of realizing that he is giving mercy upon mercy upon mercy. God is a God of great mercy. You know, a lot of people think they want justice. And in a human level, we want there to be justice among people, but you don't want justice from God. You're saying, God, I want justice. You know what justice is for sinners? The wages of sin is death. You don't want justice from God for you. We want mercy. We want grace. God is holy, and we are sinners. Justice for us means condemnation, but grace and mercy are because of the cross. And just like Abraham, for us too, we can be counted righteous before God by faith alone. Paul wrote in Romans 4, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So at the end of chapter 10, they set off on their journey. They set up, pack things up, and they leave following God. In the same way for us, we need to remember that God is faithful, God is holy, and as we move on, we should also move on in faith and holiness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you are God that can be trusted and you are God that is holy. And so we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and what he did for us because it is only by his blood and his sacrifice shed in our place that we can come boldly before a holy God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.